hppodcraft.com. The story had held us round the fire sufficiently breathless, but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome, as on Christmas Eve in an old house a strange tale should essentially be, I remember no comment uttered till somebody happened to say that it was the only case he had met in which such a visitation had fallen on a child. The case, I may mention, was that of an apparition in just such an old house as had gathered us for the occasion. An appearance of a dreadful kind to a little boy sleeping in the room with his mother and waking her up in the terror of it. Waking her not to dissipate his dread and soothe him to sleep again, but to encounter also herself before she had succeeded in doing so, the same sight that had shaken him. It was this observation that drew from Douglas, not immediately but later in the evening, a reply that had the interesting consequence to which I call attention. Someone else told a story not particularly effective, which I saw he was not following. This I took for a sign that he had himself something to produce, and that we should only have to wait. We waited, in fact, till two nights later, but that same evening, before we scattered, he brought out what was in his mind. I quite agree, in regard to Griffin's ghost or whatever it was, that its appearing first to the little boy at so tender an age adds a particular touch. But it's not the first occurrence of its charming kind that I know to have involved a child. If the child gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? That was The Curtain Rising on The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, and we're talking about it here on HP Podcraft, Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. Our reader is once again Greg Johnson. He's doing an excellent job, but I'm going to warn you, uh, we're swapping him out for another reader as we go along. Rachel Lackey. If one reader gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two readers? (laughs) By the way, earlier in the year, you know, we thought about tackling this novel, and I said I didn't want to read some mustache-breezing ghost story. I was pretty dismissive of it. Uh, But that was really about the time of the year and my mood. I just wasn't up for this. It's not really a comment on the quality here. As a matter of fact, I have never read this before, so I wasn't speaking out of anything I knew. Have you read this before? No. I started to read a little bit of it, and it seemed very florid, and I was like, ugh, can't bother. Yeah. But once you get into it, this is... This has got some real stuff going on. Oh, yeah. It's it's a really good book. And I th- and I knew that it was a really good book. It's just the dead of winter is a good time to pick it up. Let, let, <laughs> yeah. First, let's get a fleeting glimpse of this author. Let me tell you the tale of Henry James. If one first name gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two first names? <laughs> he was born in New York City in 1843. He's American. Yeah, that's right. An American expat like you. Like me. A lot of his work actually does center around this collision of the new world and the old world. The other book of his that I'm somewhat familiar with is The Portrait of a Lady, which is about an American woman in England dealing with inherited wealth, gets scammed by some other Americans. He grew up in Albany. His father was a lecturer and philosopher who was born into money. His grandfather was a banker. So he had just, you know, acquired all this wealth and his Mm. father could just kind of be a lecturer and philosopher full time and travel around the world, which he did. So James traveled with his family in Europe, most of it being in France. He learned French and strangely, 
he lost his stutter when he spoke French. He stuttered when he was speaking English, but when he learned French, no stutter. But that's not really fair because the stutter's built into the French language. <laughs> like the original phrase was just ooh la, but oh. people stutter. And so they yeah. went, you know, it could be ooh la la, that's fine. They're just a very accepting people. When he was 18, he was seriously injured while fighting a fire, an injury that troubled him throughout his life. They think it was a, a back injury. They're not exactly sure what that injury was. He threw a punch at the fire and it didn't land, <laughs> so he injured his back. That's not how you fight a fire, you moron. <laughs> but his injury did keep him out of the American Civil War. In 1864, he was 21 years old. He moved to Boston with his family. He went to Harvard Law School for a bit, but he didn't care much for law. So he got into literature. His first published work was as a theater critic, but quickly he got his first short story published, A Tragedy of Air, in that same year. In 1871, he published his first novel, Watch and Ward. He traveled around Europe again when he was in his early 20s, finally settling in London in 1869. He wrote this novel much later in life, in 1898. It was first serialized in Collier's, but then was published later that year in book format in The Two Magics. Now, Lovecraft was a big fan of this book, and this is from Supernatural Horror and Literature, edited because Lovecraft likes spoiling stuff. Yeah, he spoiled this book for me, even though I, you know, I've seen The Innocents in some adaptations, so I should have known the ending. But uh, uh -huh. when I went to go read what he had to write about it, he spoiled it for me nonetheless. Yes. Very yes. mad about that. <laughs> so we're going to cut out the spoilers and just give you basically what he says. He says, in The Turn of the Screw, Henry James triumphs over his inevitable pomposity and prolixity sufficiently well to create a truly potent air of sinister menace. James is perhaps too diffuse, too unctuously urbane, and too much addicted to subtleties of speech to realize fully all the wild and devastating horror in his situations. But for all that, there is a rare and mounting tide of fright. A bit of a diss, but eh, okay. Yeah, if that isn't the pot calling the kettle Stygian. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I disagree personally. He, for him to say his prolixity, which I guess means, you know, going on and on and on about something, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll let uh, Voluminous cover that one. <laughs> I have a feeling Lovecraft might be guilty of that. But um, I also disagree that he's overcoming a defective style. We talk a lot about authorial intent and design on this show. It's fun mm -hmm. to think this is what the author was trying to do with the story. And for example, with Lovecraft, he has a writing style he brings to the problem. He's got the mm -hmm. way he constructs his plots. And then there are the themes he reinforces with the outcomes of those plots. You get swept away in the story of it sometimes, but a good portion yeah. of what we talk about here are ideas that he's trying to get across. And this yeah. book, it's got a really scant plot, but a meal is made out of a very few events. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like the actual storytelling in The Turn of the Screw is something that bubbles up organically from the characters. It's bottom up rather than top down. I don't want to mm -hmm. think about the author. Uh, you know, in terms of reading this, yes, there are so many clauses in a sentence. There's so much to track that it forces one to read and reread each passage in order to kind of decipher the meaning, which can be really annoying depending on what your mood is when you come to this. Mm -hmm. But you're really rewarded if you have the patience to do that. And I don't yeah. know if the book works unless you do, because the thing that I wish I knew going in was that confusion is okay, contradiction is okay, because the point of what's being told here is not necessarily to give you facts in order. It's more meant to mirror human thought. The style here isn't Henry James. It's not his methodology being applied to the problem of creating the story. The writing style is the story. That's my mm -hmm. feeling. 
Mm-hmm. And I think if you go in with that understanding, it quickly becomes something uh, that you don't need to overcome, but it's something to enjoy. So I think if you reduce this book to its essence, it really is like a narrative exploration of a single moment that we all experience, which is that feeling when you look up, somebody or something's there that should not be there. For a split mm-hmm. second, you react physically and like a flood of simultaneous impulses come into your brain. And you know you conclude, this is a threat, this is a friend, this is a misunderstanding, it was a cardboard stand of a Jar Jar Binks, Got it before I saw that movie. What was I thinking? Now I don't know what to do with it. Really spent a lot of money on this. Like all that stuff flies in, hits you once, hits you so fast. And if you were to unpack it all, it would read like one of these sentences or pages. It's a it's a series of quick, sometimes contradictory, sometimes silly, sometimes very revealing thoughts. And our narrator frequently says, don't take this as a sequential listing of what I thought in this moment. All of it happened in my mind at once. And I don't know how much time really passed in the real world. So this is a scary book, but... You know, you have to slow down, read each morsel, and then that screw starts to turn. The tension builds and the ambiguity that's also in there, which we'll talk about a lot, the subjectiveness of the experience, it makes it even scarier. You kind of have to surrender to that main character's point of view. There's there's no author in my mind when I'm reading this. you got to kind of surrender to the psychological experience of the main character in the reading of it. Uh-huh. Exactly. Hopefully you, you, you listen to us talk about it and it will inspire you to read it and hopefully appreciate it as well. Yeah. You know, that was kind of our mission statement when we came out, if you recall, Mm because Lovecraft wasn't easy to read for a lot of people. And we were trying to make it a little bit more accessible. Totally. And I, uh, yeah, hopefully we can do that here. And I'm hoping, and I really hope we're doing this here because this was hard for me to get into this book. It took about two chapters before I was finally like, okay, I'm getting into the rhythm of it. And about four chapters before I was like, there's real stuff going on here. Like this isn't some gothic flighty thing. This is, this has got real meat on the bones here. The story begins at a party and folks are talking ghost stories. One dude says, a story about ghosts showing up to a kid is pretty scary. Our old dude, he says, Douglas is his name. He goes, if one kid gives the effect another turn of the screw, what would you say to two children? And I guess, you know, I guess it's a bit more scary. (laughs) Maybe not really. At least one kid's not alone if there's two kids. So Mm -hmm. maybe it is a little less scary. I'm not sure. Yeah, this was this led to the rating system for scary novels. How many kids? You know, is uh, it two kids scary or is it one kid scary? But that kind of gives you a sense of when I started reading this, I'm just like, what the what the hell is this guy talking about? Two kids makes it more scary? No, it doesn't. Why does it make it more scary? Well, in, in this, and this was something we were talking about before we jumped into recording today, mm-hmm. it does let you know that children don't show up often in these Christmas ghost stories that they're all used to telling each other. It's a yeah. unique thing for kids to be there, in there at all. Or even part of the the horror of it. Like sometimes kids will be in these stories, but they're not the ones actually experiencing anything. Correct. Yeah. It's just like when we were doing the mystery authors month and it was pointed out that that was so unique for a kid to be hurt in Mm -hmm. one of those stories. Yeah. The folks at this party are eating this up. They want a two kid ghost story. They're (laughs) super stoked about it. I do. I did want to note, I feel really bad for whomever told that middle story. (laughs) says someone else told a story not particularly effective which i saw he was not following and neither's the narrator because he's looking at douglas so just some crappy story got told in the first paragraph so douglas says that he can't tell the story because it's actually written down and he's going to send for the manuscript because he didn't write it a woman did he's the only one who's heard or read this story he's in possession of the manuscript he says nothing touches it for dreadful dreadfulness and one of the women there goes oh how delicious I enjoyed. But Douglas knew this woman. She was a most charming person, but she was 10 years older than I. She was my sister's governess. He was totally into her, but her heart belonged to another. Yeah, he says, yes, she was in love. That is, she had been. That came out. She couldn't tell her story without its coming out. I saw it, and she saw I saw it. 
but neither of us spoke of it. And that, that that's a good encapsulation of, of what I was talking about, you know? How many interactions mm-hmm. do you have with people where you're both aware of some truth, but you're not addressing it? Oh, yeah. He says it's going to take a few days to get there, and he wonders how many of these people are actually going to stick around long enough to hear this ghost story. And they're all like, oh, I'm going to do it. Of course I'm going to stick around for a few days. I want to hear this ghost story. In this, in this time that he has before he reads it, he does have to provide some setup because the manuscript's going to start in the middle of things. Yeah, the manuscript doesn't have all this outside detail, and he's he's willing to provide that, of course. He explains that the governess has been dead 20 years. He probably has let this time pass without telling the story out of some kind of respect for her, but it concerns things that happened to her when she was 20 years old. She was put in charge of these two kids. Their parents had died and fell under the responsibility of their uncle. They were staying at the old family place in Essex, Bly Manor, with the housekeeper, Mrs. Gross. She was watching the little girl, Flora, who was eight, as well as the older boy, Miles, 10, but he was away at boarding school. The former governess died. The people at the party want to know what the former governess died from, but Douglas won't say. The woman that wrote the story was interviewed by the handsome uncle, and she took the job not only for money, but because she wanted to please him. Maybe she had some hopes of a gothic romance kind of thing. Hmm. That, you know, she would get the job and she would be awesome and he would fall in love with her and they would get yeah. married. But this story, I think, is more of a cautionary tale and less of a gothic romance, especially when the uncle stipulates that she should never trouble him, but never, never, neither appeal nor complain nor write about anything, only meet all questions herself, receive all monies from his solicitor, take the whole thing over and let him alone. She promised to do this and she mentioned to me that when... For a moment, this burdened, delighted, he held her hand, thanking her for the sacrifice. She already felt rewarded. What a sap. <laughs> She's accepting an enormous amount of responsibility that she doesn't understand. Oh, my and God. It's definitely a plot device to do that because now you've put walls on the world she's about to mm-hmm. you know, go into. But I think it's packed with human experience, that passing of childhood to adulthood and then adulthood to parenthood. You sense it's a little predatory what he's doing here. Oh, it's a- absolutely. It's by virtue of the fact that she needs a job, that he's even able to do this to mm-hmm. her. And I think we all can understand what it's like to step into an experience you don't really want to have or that you're unsure about because he doesn't need money. Yep. But it's crucial for this to happen, for the horror to work. Because it speaks to adulthood. That first time you're given responsibility at a job, there's nobody to call to help you. If it goes wrong, it's your fault. And then obviously, I think nothing's more extreme than, than parenthood. After yeah. you, there's 911 and then God and receptionist body for both. <laughs> you are the final authority. Yeah. And like young parents, I think her youth and her na- naive nature, you know, that's to her advantage. She addresses it herself in the narrative. She says, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I just figured I'd be able to handle this. No problem. Oh, man. Now, at this point, Douglas begins to read from the manuscript, and that gets us into chapter one. I remember the whole beginning as a succession of flights and drops, a little seesaw of the right throbs and the wrong. After rising in town to meet his appeal, I had at all events a couple of very bad days, found myself doubtful again, felt indeed sure I'd made a mistake. In this state of mind, I spent the long hours of bumping, swinging coach that carried me to the sloping place at which I was to be met by a vehicle from the house. This convenience, I was told, had been ordered, and I found, towards the close of the June afternoon, commodious fly in waiting for me. Driving at that hour, on a lovely day, through a country to which the summer sweetness seemed to offer me a friendly welcome, my fortitude mounted afresh, and as we turned into the avenue, encountered a reprieve that was probably but a proof of the point to which it had sunk. I suppose I had expected, or had dreaded, 
something so melancholy that what greeted me was a good surprise. I remember as a most pleasant impression the broad, clear front, its open windows and fresh curtains, and the pair of maids looking out. I remember the lawn and the bright flowers, and the crunch of my wheels on the gravel, and the clustered treetops over which the rooks circled and cawed in the golden sky. The scene had a greatness that made it a different affair from my own scant home, and there immediately appeared at the door, with a little girl in her hand, a civil person who dropped me as decent a curtsy as if I'd been the mistress or a distinguished visitor. I had received in Harley Street a narrower notion of the place, and that, as I recalled it, made me think the proprietor still more of a gentleman, suggested that what I was to enjoy might be something beyond his promise. So hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> it was the perfect job. But, you know, also scared. Because it's, yeah. I, I like this part. It says, after rising in town to meet his appeal, I had at all events a couple of very bad days. Found myself doubtful again. Felt indeed sure I'd made a mistake. She knows from her interview that some other folks heard the... She does know. I mean, he told her some other people heard this pitch and said, see, ya. <laughs> they couldn't yep. handle it. Mm -hmm. I, I love that the narrative kicks off with, did I just make a huge mistake? At least she's not mm -hmm. an idiot. Now she arrives at Bly and she is met by the housekeeper, Mrs. Grouse, and Flora, the little girl. This kid is beautiful, like a little angel, almost supernatural in her cuteness and adorability, <laughs> almost to the point of being unnerving. It's over the top how cute and beautiful and beatific these kids are. And yeah. remember when we talked about cute aggression on the show? I, we I do, yeah, brought we do. up a couple of times. That's this urge that some people have to squeeze or crush or bite cute things. You know, you don't want to hurt them, but it's just like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to rip you to pieces. Yeah. <laughs> I think that either these kids are preternaturally sweet and beautiful, and it is a handsome family, obviously, yeah. but also, you know, are they this way in light of the responsibility she has? Mother, father, whole family responsibility. It's kind of the way you feel about your own children or pets or things that are in your charge, you know, this yep. love and affection, it's uncomfortably overbearing. And I think one particular moment of horror in life is I love this person too much. It's so scary because the world is dangerous. And, and that's when you have to kill them. <laughs> She's heartened that this place is nicer than she worried. And I always like this rags to riches beat in stories. It says the large, impressive room, one of the best in the house, the great state bed as I almost felt it, the full figured draperies, the long glasses in which for the first time I could see myself from head to foot all struck me like the extraordinary charm of my small charge as so many things thrown in. And I think the the scale of her childhood and previous status in life is very skillfully encapsulated in the fact that she's never seen herself in a full-length mirror. Mm. That says everything about the scale of her world. Also, we have some suggestions already. You know, when thinking back on this, she recalls that there were some footsteps outside of her door and maybe a child crying in the distance. Yes. James is careful to remind us all the time that this is a recounting and that earlier events are now seen through the lens of a later, more disturbing event. So these, mm -hmm. those little things pop up right away. She remarks on Flora's beauty to Mrs. Gross, who says, oh, yeah, kid's gorgeous. She asks about the boy, Miles, and Mrs. Gross says, yeah, that kid is equally cherub-like. He's very good-natured. He's supposed to arrive from boarding school the next day. Mrs. Gross and she are speaking with that relief that you have when you find out someone's nice that you're kind of worried about meeting. There's sometimes this quick, very authentic outpouring of relief. And I think that leads to this candor when Gross says, the boy is so handsome, you'll be carried away. And the governess says, well, I'm rather easily carried away. I was carried away in London. <laughs> 
Mrs. Gross says, well, miss, you're not the first and you won't be the last. I think she yeah. might be talking about the boy. And, you know, but the, the governess is like, oh, I have no pretension to being the only one. You know, she's talking about the uncle. It's kind of the 1898 equivalent of that uncle is really hot. You know, Mrs. Gross goes, I know, right? It just feels that way. <laughs> now, the governess suggests that they meet the boy in town. And Mrs. Gross agrees that would be a splendid idea. She spends the whole day with Flora, who shows her around Bly. And she's very sweet and enthusiastic. The governess remarks how she had so much hope hope then. And now, at the time of this writing, how her feelings about Bly Manor have changed a lot. She says, I had the fancy of being almost as lost as a handful of passengers in a great drifting ship. Well, I was strangely at the helm. Again, that idea. Wait a minute. I'm in charge. Is this a good idea? <laughs> that night, the post arrives and the governess gets a letter from her employer with another letter in it from Miles School. And he says, read him, please deal with him. But mind, you don't report. Not a word. I'm off. So, yeah, he didn't even open the letter. He just flat out forwarded it to her yep. to deal with, which is the job as described. Yeah. Guy's such an asshole. She opens up the letter from the school and it says that the child is dismissed with no explanation. He's expelled. They just say, impossible to keep him. And then there's a note from Lovecraft that actually criticizes that letter's ambiguity. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it doesn't spell out what he did. It just says he's got to no. go. We don't ever know for sure what he did. So the next morning, she goes to Mrs. Gross and says, is Miles a naughty kid? What could he have done to be expelled? And Mrs. Gross comes to his defense and says, the kid is a baby effing angel. Any wrongdoing, especially something that would get him kicked out of school, doesn't make a lick of sense. Now, sometimes he'd get a little rambunctious, but that's just kid stuff. What could he have done? Injure somebody? Eh, you know, but still kids, mm. you know, kids fight. That's nothing that you would expel a kid for. Mrs. Gross yeah. says, no, there's no way he's gentle. He wouldn't have gotten in a fight. He's sweet. And the governess is doubtful. But Mrs. Gross says, when you meet the kid, you'll see. Has Miles been naughty before? Mrs. Gross is like, well, he's been naughty, but that's good. It shows spirit. And you don't want a kid who's an automaton. And the governess agrees. And then they kind of bond over this in almost an overly emotional way. She says, so do I, I eagerly brought out but not to the degree to contaminate. To contaminate? My big word left her at a loss. I explained to corrupt. She stared, taking my meaning in, but it produced in her an odd laugh. Are you afraid he'll corrupt you? She put the question with such a fine, bold humor that with a laugh, a little silly doubtless, to match her own, I gave way for the time to the apprehension of ridicule. She has to clarify when she says contaminate because Mrs. Gross is illiterate. And this mm. became apparent earlier when she tried to hand her the letter from the school to read for herself. You can just tell that the governess is uncomfortable with class realities like this. Mm -hmm. Something about it embarrassed her when she couldn't read. Before she leaves to pick up Miles, she asks Mrs. Grouse about the previous governess. And she says that she was young and pretty the way the employer liked them. It's an interesting beat, though, because Mrs. Grouse is inadvertently revealing. She says he seems to uh, uh, the governess says he seems to like us young and pretty. Oh, he did. Mrs. Grouse assented. It was the way he liked everyone. She had no sooner spoken than she caught herself up. I mean, that's his way, the master's. But whom did you speak first? The governess asks. Uh, why of him? Of the master? Of who else? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. hmm. The governess asks if the previous governess said anything about Miles' behavior, but Mrs. Gross says no. She finally asks if the governess died at Bly, and she says no. She left to go home and have a short holiday, but she took ill and she died. And that's the last that she heard of her. But what did she die of? The governess wants to know. And Mrs. Gross says, he never told me, please, I, I, I got to get back to my work. So it had that law and order chapter ending, you know. Are you yeah. guys done asking me about this homicide? Because I got a lot of meat to get out of this freezer. <laughs>
So chapter three, it's the next day and the governess is late picking up Miles. He's waiting for her in front of the inn. And he's just as Mrs. Gross described him, beautiful and tender. She is immediately taken with a boy. When she gets back, she goes to Mrs. Gross and says, that kid is an angel. And she's like, see, I told you. And the governess says, no way that kid did anything wrong as to be expelled. It's not possible. So she just decides that she's going to ignore the letter. Hmm. I don't know if that's a really good decision there, but... It's a decision. It's a decision. (laughs) Mrs. Gross says that she thinks that's, that's for the best and she will stand by the governess's decision. And then they hug each other. Then this strange thing happens here. She says, she held me there in a moment, then whisked up her apron again with her detached hand. Would you mind, miss, if I used the freedom... To kiss me? No. And I took the good creature in my arms and after we had embraced like sisters, felt more fortified and indignant. So familiar. Well, look, here's these two women who are dealing with all these things out in this lonely house and they can't even like hug without feeling all weird about it. You know, it's it's that new world, old world thing where what's the point of all of this stuff? Can't we just talk frankly to one another? You know, but there's this uh this thing that I love that idea that she goes, I'm not going to deal with it. I've decided that what I'm going to do is not deal with it. And it's like, <laughs> hey, I made a decision. Good job. That's such a 20 year old thing to do. <laughs> I used to have a job, you know, when I was, I remember I had a job and I would always kick anything that was hard. I'd go, I'm going to do that on Thursday. And then when Thursday would come, I'd be like, how did this happen? <laughs> Thursday just sounds like a day that's never going to come. You know, that's yeah. that's the day I'm going to wake up. I'm going to w- work 12 hours. I'm going to love it. Yeah. Well, Mrs. Gross goes back to work and the governess gets to teaching those kids. And it's a breeze. The kids are great. So while the characters are here, the scene is set. And to my point earlier about the writing style being the story, the story itself, even being sparse, it is somewhat conventional in terms of narrative events because, you know, the, the copy I'm reading of this is about 90 pages, which would be the length of a brisk screenplay. And I was reading and I thought, oh, I'm on page 10 or 11. This must be where the catalyst should go. You know, the thing that occurs after setup to shake up the character's world. That's where it happens. Minute 10 to 12 somewhat. And then boom, it happens. It may be, of course, above all, that what suddenly broke into this gives the previous time a charm of stillness, that hush in which something gathers or crouches. The change was actually like the spring of a beast. So she's telling you, here it is. Mm -hmm. Also in the treatment of it, I like how James here is talking about that stillness. Maybe it was only still in retrospect. Yeah. Throughout the novel, it threads in that idea of sudden silence, sound dropping out. And I feel that what he's doing when that happens is expanding, you know, slowing time down, expanding the moments within it. But let's get into this beast springing. We can have more of that later. Yes. Now, even though she likes her work and the kids, she really likes her alone time. Who doesn't? She only gets about an hour a day to herself at dusk. And since it's summer, that's the golden hour, the sun just setting. So one afternoon, she's out on her stroll around the grounds of the manor, enjoying her time. And she's a bit lonely, and she thinks how nice it would be just to run into somebody out here on the path and have a nice little chat. There's an almost catcher-in-the-rye level of self-awareness in the governess that I like. You know, you'd mentioned earlier that she imagined maybe this uncle would, you know, maybe they'd have a little gothic love story. He'd be a Mm -hmm. Mr. Darcy or a Rochester, and, you know, frequently, like a young person, she'll step back and see the grand dramatic sweep of her own story. And Mm -hmm. that's happening in this moment. It would be as charming as a charming story suddenly to meet someone. Someone would appear there at the turn of a path and would stand before me and smile and approve. I didn't ask for more than that. I only asked that he should know. And the only (laughs) way to be sure he knew would be to see it and the kind light of it in his handsome face. Man, I love that how it says all I'm asking for is that they would know. (laughs) 
that would be enough. But, but of course, I wouldn't be able to know they knew unless they, you know, you could see it on the face. And yeah. probably the best way to know is if it were a handsome face, exactly, you know. Yeah. And and I think she's about to go, and you know who has a really handsome face when this incident happens? Yes. She comes out of the woods. She sees the house in full view, and she notices a man standing in one of the towers of the house. What arrested me on the spot was the sense that my imagination had in a flash turned real. He did stand there, but high up. It produced in me this figure in the clear twilight. I remember two distinct gasps of emotion, which were sharply the shock of my first and that of my second surprise. My second was a violent perception of the mistake of my first. The man who met my eyes was not the person I had precipitately supposed. There came to me thus a bewilderment of vision of which, after these years, there is no living view that I can hope to give. An unknown man in a lonely place is a permitted object of fear to a young woman privately bred, and the figure that faced me a few more seconds assured me, as little anyone else I knew, as it was the image that had been in my mind. I had not seen it in Harley Street, I had not seen it anywhere. The place, moreover, in the strangest way in the world, had, on the instant, and by the very fact of its appearance, become a solitude, to me at least, making my statement here with a deliberation with which I have never made it. The whole feeling of the moment returns. It was as if, while I took it in, what I did take in, all the rest of the scene had been stricken with death. I can hear again as I write the intense hush in which the sounds of evening dropped. The rooks stopped cawing in the golden sky, and the friendly hour lost for the minute all its voice. But there was no other change in nature, unless indeed it were a change that I saw with a stranger's sharpness. The gold was still in the sky, the clearness in the air, and the man who looked at me over the battlements was as definite as a picture in a frame. That's how I thought, with extraordinary quickness, of each person that he might have been and that he was not. We were confronted across our distance, quite long enough for me to ask myself with intensity, who then he was, and to feel, as an effect of my inability to say, a wonder that in a few instants became more intense. He's looking at her, and she at him, and some time passes, and then he just walks away. Says I had the sharpest sense that during this transit he never took his eyes from me, and I can see at this moment the way his hand, as he went, passed from one of the crenellations to the next. He stopped at the other corner, but less long, and even as he turned away still markedly fixed me. He turned away. That was all I knew. It's the end of that chapter, the end of that catalyst moment. And uh, Mm -hmm. I got to say that in terms of a ghost story, it's pretty neat that this guy is in high def. She sees his hand move from one crenellation to the next. You know, this is a human man who is there in the light of day. It's for sure there. He's there. It's a dude. It's not a ghost. It's not something she's not sure she saw or not. At least at this point, she's like, that's a dude. What's he doing up there? It's a pretty scary incident just practically because they're watching these kids and there's just this guy that they don't know or that Mm -hmm. she doesn't know if they know who just shows up and he's in the house. Yep. And again, in that passage, you hear there's that moment of sound dropping out. It's also a passage in which she's both revealing her thoughts. She's editorializing on her thoughts while she's revealing them. It's It's a really good book. Thanks again to our actors this week, Greg and Rachel. Thank you so much. And I want to thank some patrons. I'd like to thank Marlena Frank. I'd like to thank Sam Bowell. Albert Rice, thank you so much. Charles Proteau, thank you. Lauren Raddis, thank you so much. Thank you, Lee Sharp. Thank you, Rob Bramlett. Thank you, Snow. Wow. (laughs) Snow, the the musician behind Informer, listens to the show. (laughs) Uh, Or crystallized water droplets. I'm not not sure which. It is December. 
It is that time of year. I'd also like to thank Cool Stuff Supporter. Like the name. <laughs> that is a great handle. And finally, I'd like to thank Zachary Gonzalez. Thank you all so much. We're going to continue with the Turn of the Screw next week. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Here at HPPodcraft.com. 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 <laughs>